Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Welcome to the show. It's Radiotherapy. My name is Training Wheels. My co-host Cyber Sue is on the Zoom and hopefully she'll be loud and clear soon enough. I've got Panel Beater here in the studio with me this morning and we've got two fabulous guests that will be joining us later on in the show. I'm very excited for us to get to know them together. Our first guest is Dr Jessica Green. She's a Melbourne-based psychiatrist who's studying the link between mental health and the gut particularly the utility of faecal transplants in treating depression. I apologise in advance for any poo-related puns that might come up over the course of the hour. I think that's going to be super fascinating. And our second guest is Julie Bornenkoff, who is the CEO of Perinatal Anxiety and Depression Australia, also known as PANDA. PANDA were recently recipients of an award recognising their important work in the prevention of suicide. So we're very interested to hear from Julie all about that. But first, let's go into some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Cyber Sue, how are you? Well, I'm great and I've been kind of uh, dealing with, uh, I've been embracing technical challenges this Good Friday Easter weekend as well. You know what it's like, new computers, trying to transfer them. It's supposed to be easy, but it's never like that. Oh, fun and games. What about you, Panel Beater? How are you? A bit relaxed, more relaxed now? Yeah, Yeah, that somebody had been playing around with all the settings. You know how you take things for granted and you turn up, you press a button expecting something to happen, then that thing doesn't happen? <laughs> Feeling We've better now. We've figured it out. Yeah. We've figured it out. Cyber Sue, I think you've got a bit of news for us. I do, I do. Well, of course, you know, there's no such thing as a radiotherapy uh, discussion without a wee update on COVID. And um, there was an article in, on the ABC on Friday, and it's titled, Victoria could be hitting the next peak of COVID-19 wave, so what's next? And it kind of raises uh, three questions that it addresses which I think are just relevant to us as we start to uh, get on with life with COVID. The first one is, should we, should we be easing the mandatory seven-day quarantine for close contacts? This has been having a massive impact on business, on parents, schools, and so on. So is it time to be easing? The second question is, are our current vaccine mandates still appropriate? And, um, you know, there are people who are, uh, through not being vaccinated, they aren't able to work certain jobs, they're not able to go to restaurants, and is it time to actually review these? And the third question is, what's some basic ways we could be preparing for a new variant? So what the data has been showing is that in the seven-day average, there's a kind of somewhere between a slight decline or perhaps a plateau of the number of cases. Um, Of course, we know that the numbers are very arbitrary because who's actually reporting them? It's home-based rats now. Um, So the numbers are fairly meaningless. So hospitalisations are perhaps a bit more relevant. They're sitting at um, just a bit under 400, 
much, much, much lower than our previous peaks of 800 to 1200 type of thing. And um, we've got now around about one to five people a day on a ventilator in hospital. And previously that was well over a hundred. So our numbers, are, our numbers of the impact on health is nothing like it has been. We've got just under around about 20 people in ICU. Whereas for a long time, we were sitting at well between hundred to 150 in ICU. So with this in mind, um, the Australia's peak COVID-19 public health body has recommended that um, the, the mandated quarantine period be phased out and that essentially we should start using common sense and making sensible decisions. So, for example, if we're sharing a bedroom with someone who's really sick and they're symptomatic, don't go to work and start to use common sense. However, here in Victoria, the Premier says we're not quite ready for using common sense yet. Um, the time to loosen the rules hasn't just arrived, but um, just keep looking at vaccination rates, keep looking at options for masks and other things and stay with the status quo. The other kind of thing I mentioned was the, uh, the vaccine mandates. Um, our two-dose vaccine rate is about 95% for over 12-year-olds, um, but many people are not really getting the booster. We've got about 67% had the booster. I wonder why that is. I wonder why people aren't getting it. Interesting. Anyway. I, it's a good question, isn't it, Trainer Wheels? And I think it's. I, I mean, I think that the the, the urgency is not there anymore, and mm. um, you know we don't have this crisis, and we are getting on with our life, so it's become less urgent, I guess. Um, but these people who haven't been vaccinated, who can't go into dining and so on, uh, there has been a big impact on their life and also on employment, and people can't get staff and so on. And again, this peak body, uh, Professor Blakely, he suggests that. Uh, it's really time to review that and to drop that mandatory locking people out. He said, yes, if you're working in aged care, if you're working in high-risk environments, absolutely get vaccinated. You need to be vaccinated, perhaps not. You can still go to a restaurant and carry on with your life. And then the final little comment that came out of it is, what are some things we might do to be prepared for another variant that comes out? And um, the advice is that as a society, we've got lots and lots of systems in place. We're all good to go, but have a good stock of N95 masks so that very rapidly, if we need to, we can all get really good, effective masks. We can get them in place and we can hopefully avoid um, lockdowns. Mm. Always an evolving field, isn't it, Cyber Sue? I think in Queensland, they've dropped their vaccine mandate now, haven't they? I have trouble coping with Victoria, never mind looking at Yeah, yeah, yeah. Space. I can't keep up. Oh. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but anyway, it's a work in progress. But mm. uh, from, from what I see is that we're um, nothing is going to change just yet in Victoria, but at least they're talking about it. Mm. And at least, uh, you know, there is some good advice coming out of these peak bodies that didn't mm. even exist two years ago. Mm. I think what's mm. interesting, you know, Cyber, you mentioned that the impact on hospitals is a lot less now than it was during our previous peaks but the hospitals for in my experience they're still really struggling <laughs> um yeah. not with covid presentations but the the emergency departments and the the general medicine wards are so packed yeah. um and, and i don't know if so it's true. that people have put things off and are, you know presenting sicker or you know just that everything takes a bit longer in hospital because we've got more bureaucracy and ppe mm -hmm. and people need to be in infectious precautions and you know, we're understaffed and yada, yada. But, but yeah, the, the hospitals are still in, not in a good way, I would say. And I think we're going to see that for quite some time. Mm. And like you mm -hmm. just said, people are, have put stuff off for so long and now there are, there's many people who are a lot more sick coming into hospital mm. or needing treatment and so on because they've delayed things by up to two years. So, mm. uh, 
you're 100% in the health system is not is a long way from being out of the woods yet. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much for that, Cyber. My update is really just a PSA. It's not news as such, except for a bit of personal news. My asthma has been a bit crap over the last few weeks. <laughs> so I thought I'd take the opportunity to just <laughs> remind listeners to look after themselves and look after their asthma, especially now that we're opening up as a society. We're all getting exposed to all sorts of respiratory viruses, not just COVID, of course, but flu and all other respiratory viruses are floating around and, and for people who are vulnerable, those can set off asthma, of course. Um, we're also, you know, in the changing of the seasons, which can be a trigger for some people. And I just wanted to remind people really not to, you know, put these things off. Do go to your GP. If you haven't seen your GP about your asthma for a while, it's a really good idea just to check in with them and be proactive especially if you feel like your symptoms aren't well controlled. So, you know, some warning signs for your asthma going a little bit downhill, um, increasing use of your reliever, so your, um, your Ventolin or similar medications like that, waking up in the middle of the night with symptoms or, or just feeling, you know, not quite crash hot, you're just not quite on top of your symptoms. Get off to your GP and, and get yourself a written asthma management plan, which is really empowering, I think, for for people to have. It gives you a really clear instructions of, of what to do if your symptoms are getting worse and so that you can manage them yourself and, and what the triggers are for you to go and get reviewed by a GP. And and also, you know, as I bring up every episode, <laughs> I'm pregnant and that's my own little bias. Um, asthma can get worse during pregnancy. And of course, in pregnancy, it's normal to feel a bit nervous about taking medications and things. But the evidence is that uncontrolled asthma is far more dangerous for your unborn baby than any of the medications we use to treat asthma. So really don't use pregnancy as a reason to hesitate in treating your asthma aggressively. It's the best thing you can do for yourself and your baby is to treat that um, that condition. And, you know, generally speaking, if there is a medication that you need, if you have a health condition that requires medication, most of the time, leaving it untreated is going to be more dangerous for your baby than any of the medications we use to treat though that condition of course talk to your gp and your specialists if you're not sure always get advice and it's normal to to um to you know want extra information but the most important thing is to look after your own health even when you've got a baby on board just a little psa for our listeners this morning um uh, anything and to so use i think that's so important training wheels isn't it um because in pregnancy we're so we've you, you we're so conscious of not taking on anything and not taking any medication whatsoever and but the the take home is that's not a blanket rule no exactly yeah, yeah what's yeah. having a having a sick vessel isn't good for the baby <laughs> yeah um oh. so looking very well i might add oh thank you yeah. thank you cyber sue despite my coughing and my I, I do apologize if i cough it's not covid it is asthma this is a podcast from triple r an independent media organization in melbourne australia triple r is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding if you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Dr. Green is a consultant psychiatrist based in Melbourne, and she's also a PhD candidate studying the link between the gut microbiome and mental health. In particular, Dr. Green is looking at the possibility of using faecal transplants in the treatment of depression. Wow. Dr. Green, thank you so much for joining us. Can you hear us okay? Yeah, I can do training wheels, and thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. We can hear you too. We're all under control. 
can we just start off by getting to know you a little bit? What got you interested in psychiatry? Can you remember? <laughs> it's a long time ago now. Oh, in psychiatry? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. Well, I guess I've all, I, I wanted to do a profession in which, um, well, one, I love talking. <laughs> and um, and I, I, I love the idea of, uh, you know, spending longer with people, having, you know, the, the privilege um, the opportunity to sort of hear their stories um, and see them as uh, like a, a profession that sees people as, you know, a whole person rather than a focus on a specific um, system or body part. So that's what I love about it. And that's interesting that now you're, you're looking at the, the whole person, including their gut, not just their mind. True. How did that How did that happen? What got you interested? Are you a gastroenterologist in another life maybe? Or how did you get uh, into the link between the gut and mental health? Well, I was chatting with my PhD supervisor, Professor Felice Jacker, and she um, raised this crazy idea, I guess, <laughs> Of, um, uh, of of poo transplants, it's um, and uh, and the gut brain axis. Um, so it seemed really fascinating. It's just this huge topic at the moment. Um, it really interests me. I've always been interested in lifestyle medicine and being able to offer people treatments other than our traditional treatments, depression, uh, so antidepressants and um, psychotherapy. There haven't been many recent developments um, in treatments of mental illnesses, unfortunately. So it's really exciting to be part of research that exploring some new cutting edge stuff. Totally. Yeah. It's out of left field, isn't it? I mean, it feels like it for us anyway. I guess you're in there all day. So every day it's not as unusual for you. Before we get into the faecal transplant stuff, can we sort of go back to basics? Can you tell us a bit about, you mentioned the gut brain axis. What, what is that? How does that work? How, what's the gut got to do with anything that's happening above the eyeballs? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, well, basically, um, it's just an area of exploding research and interest at the moment, and it seems more and more convincing um, uh, that uh, there is clearly a relationship between the gut gut health um, and and the back the million, trillions of bacteria that live in our gut and um, mental health. So, I guess um, you know. Perhaps people will have experienced in their day to day life. You know, when you get stressed, it's it's a two way relationship actually. Um, so when you get stressed out, you might have stomach cramps, or <laughs> I'm going to get into the toilet in here, but you know, the 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 runs or whatever gut symptoms. Um, and and uh, and so so I guess that's sort of apparent to people in their day to day lives, and it works two ways. Also, so um, we know that, for example, older people can. When they get constipated, they can get delirious, um, uh, in, uh, irritable uh, bowel syndrome, um, which is very common, um, is commonly occurs with um, depression and anxiety. Um, bad, we know that bad diet is linked with poor mental health, um, and um, uh, Prof. Felice Jacker demonstrated, and, and it's been demonstrated a number of times, that um Healthy diets, for example, the, the the Mediterranean diet, which is kind of traditional diet, um, are, are can be actually used as a treatment for depression. So um, that's just a little bit <laughs> um, on on that 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 important yeah, link between. Um, gut health and mental health. Yeah, it's a huge topic and I, I thank you for sort of giving us a brief rundown because we could talk about it for the whole hour, I'm sure. And, and and for listeners who, you know, maybe might need a reminder, we there are more cells in our body that are bugs 
that are our own human cells. So, so some people say that we're, you know, we're more microbiota, you know, microbiology, microbiome than we are human. Um, and, and I believe that most of the serotonin, which is one of the sort of happy chemicals in the brain, most of the serotonin in the body is actually produced in the gut. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Training wells, yeah, 90% of the serotonin in our body is produced by bacteria that live in our gut, which is pretty astonishing. Wow, incredible, incredible. That's, so, that's... You, sorry, go, CyberSue. Oh, thank you. So that um, suggests that such 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 an interesting mix between the two. And I'm quite curious. At the moment, you're involved in this uh, research for fecal transplants. What about for um, your average Joe Blow? How much is this coming into treatment right now of people with mental health challenges for you know addressed diet and people who have irritable gut addressed mental health? Is is, is is it very much part of practice yet, or is it still very early days? I think it's gaining traction um, uh, in, in, in practice, but I guess, uh, you know, unfortunately, like, like you know, all, all matters of research and translation seems to take um, a long time before what's shown in evidence and, and what we know to be true translates into practice. But I think, um, you know, it makes sense to the public. <laughs> People want to do it. <laughs> and and um, I, I'm hoping that mental health practitioners are starting to, um, you know, um, use that in, in their practice for people. Are there certain things, Jess, that you look for in a person with, you know, depression or anxiety? Can you can you look at their poo and does it tell a story? What's Can we sort of get, I guess, into the nitty-gritty a bit more of how <laughs> – panel beat is laughing at me – is <laughs> of, of how – you know, so what's going on there? We know that the gut and the brain are related and we know that – most of the serotonin in the body is produced in the gut and there's probably other important neurotransmitters that, you know, it's a similar story. What's going on in, in depression and anxiety with the microbiome? Why, why is it affected? How does that happen? So it's the, that's a, a very good question <laughs> with a very complicated um, answer, um, but I, I'll try and give like a brief overview perhaps um, of how, how the gut um, microbiome um, might affect mental health because there's a number of ways like you said training wheels um, the the bacteria in the book in the gut produce huge amounts of um, brain chemicals I guess um, such as serotonin um, which when we're actually not sure if that if those make it into the bloodstream but they certainly act in the gut um, and they work on the, the the nervous system in the gut um, and they have their effect via a nerve called the vagus nerve that goes to, right to the brain. Um, so that's one way. Um, we know that when you have, um, I'm going to put inverted commas, bad bacteria <laughs> um, in the gut, it can lead to inflammation, and that actually affects the, the gut wall. It makes it, you know, again, to just sort of, um, uh, you know, use simple terms, a leaky gut. Um, and you can get bacteria going into the bloodstream, which is really bad. <laughs> um, it leads to chronic inflammation, and that has huge implications for the body and brain, which sits within the body, of course. <laughs> um, and uh, it can actually affect the, the sort of the lining of the brain, um, the, the blood, what we call the blood-brain barrier, um, where uh, uh, harmful chemicals and toxins can um, sort of enter more easily into the brain. So the brain, in a sense, becomes leaky too. <laughs> wow. um, so the, the, there's a, yeah. And, um, you know, these, uh, we, we think it, when, um, uh, bad, bac 
bacteria go into the blood and cause this inflammation. It can affect the immune system. It can affect all systems of the body that all relate to each other in really complicated ways. So um, it, it, it's actually very complicated to understand. And I myself struggle to get my head around it. I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not um, a, a, a gut bacteria expert. Um, I have to say, um, my, 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 my primary thing is mental health or psychiatry, but of course it's all related. So it's, it's really important that we do start, um, uh, knowing more about this and, and exploring some of these pathways with research. I'm sorry we've put you on the spot to test your microbiology knowledge, but uh, <laughs> to, uh, just for listeners also, you know, just to another reminder that the gut has a huge number of nerves all throughout it and some people refer to it as the second brain because it's got almost as many neural connections as the brain does. Um, so so when Dr Green talks about how serotonin is produced in the gut, there's heaps and heaps of nerves down there that are then talking to each other and then communicating with the brain and other parts of the body. And, and you mentioned the vagus nerve, which is a hugely important, very big nerve that goes all the way from the brain down the body through the the whole abdomen um it's one of the one of the really big ticket items in the body <laughs> it's involved in the flight or fight and rest and digest um system of the body so you know these are all sort of really big big issues that we're talking about and it all seems to come together with the gut and those bugs in there that we've kind of overlooked for a long time. We're talking to Dr Jessica Green, who is a psychiatrist and PhD candidate looking at the role of faecal transplants in the treatment of depression. And I want to get into that with you now, please. Dr Green, what is a faecal transplant? It sounds revolting. <laughs> well, uh, training wheels, I guess it, it, it is as it, as it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> can't, can't paint a necessarily much prettier picture, but um, uh, it, 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 it's quite it's quite a crude crude treatment. Basically, um, what there there are a few approaches to doing it. Um, we call the top down or the bottom up <laughs> approach. <laughs> um, basically, you to get to get the the, the source of the transplant, um, we have donors who are unicorns of human beings who are screened for every single condition that we know how to screen for pretty much. Um, very rigorous screening protocols um, and have also medical evaluations to make sure that they don't have any transferable illnesses. And then um, we get the poo of these special people and then basically <laughs> goes in a blender <laughs> with some... Uh, <laughs> sterile saline or salty water basically and then like strained and and this uh, slurry forms um what's basically um a, a poo a poo transplant but um it's delivered in a not so unpleasant way <laughs> i was gonna ask you jessica like how is it delivered is it like a smoothie <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> it's it's funny you it's funny you ask that what, there is one group who had delivered it in what they called an ultrafiltrate, um, and and in that form they had actually distilled out the bacteria. So apparently, so I hear, this solution was uh, tasteless and odorless, uh -huh. and it was mixed in with like chocolate milkshakes and yeah. orange juice and stuff. <laughs> um, we, uh, in our in our in our research, we're not doing it that way. Um, but yeah, that's one of the I guess. But more common ways of doing it are via um, the more palatable way. <laughs> yeah, more frequent ways. I say via um, uh, like 
what's called a nasogastric. We might go a tube that either goes from the nose into the stomach or perhaps the upper part of the um, intestine. It can be delivered that so it bypasses the, the mouth <laughs> entirely. That's or nice. capsules or crapsules uh, <laughs> are scientifically known. Um, uh, you, you, do, you, uh, you do need quite a few of them to get the correct dosage. Um, and so they're, they're the, the top-down approaches. And the bottom-up approaches are uh, via colonoscopy. So the person's under an, an anesthetic, they're asleep. It's um, delivered um, through, by a gastroenterologist through a procedure or um, how, how we are doing it in, in our research, which is an enema, um, which is a, 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 less, a less invasive form of that. It's just sort of a syringe um, delivery of quite a small volume um, into the rectum. So, yeah, there you go. That's wow. what it is. <laughs> and Jessica, is it a once-off type of uh, procedure or is it the kind of thing someone has to do regularly? That's the million-dollar question, CyberSue. So um, uh, d- the short answer is we don't know. Um, we don't. We think dosage is important and number of doses Make the more the, the more the merrier is the, is the current thinking, but there isn't an established consensus around what volume is needed, what dose, what concentration of the stuff, how many times the person needs to get it done, how frequently, all of that is still unknown. And I should say that at this stage, the only approved use for it anyway is for um, a, a gut infection called Clostridium difficile. So for all other indications, it's still in the research area. Mm, so it's very much emerging, which means it's very exciting and interesting. So is the idea, Dr Green, is the idea that someone with depression or anxiety has perhaps an imbalance in their gut microbiome and then you find these unicorn people with these beautiful poos <laughs> and if you give the beautiful poo to the sad person, it might make them less sad? <laughs> that, that's the idea. So um, a great study that was recently published um, uh, has, show, has shown that there are differences in gut bacteria profiles between um, people who have a diagnosis of mental illness, for example, depression, bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, um, and, and healthy uh, individuals who don't have these diagnoses diagnoses so we, we we have seen that the differences um the other th- uh, very interesting thing is we know when you get give um uh poo transplants from depressed humans into rodents you can bring on depression in the rodent um wow and and that and the same for schizophrenia even whoa interesting that is wild it is okay so hang on we know that there are risk factors for mental illnesses like childhood trauma, substance abuse, you know, all, all the kind of classic things that predispose people to a mental illness. Do we think that those experiences affect the microbiome and then they cause mental illness? Like how does this all happen? Is it like chicken and egg-wise? Are people eating bad food and that's making them sad or are they – what what is going on here? Uh, it- I guess we don't 100% know, but it's probably all of the above. Mm. All of these factors are probably related. Um, we know that depression is um, very multifactorial um, 
And so, um, <laughs> uh, you know, none of the, I guess, any one solution, I would say, never promises to be the be-all and end-all, um, but it might help a bit. <laughs> Yeah, and, wow. and Dr. Green, is there thoughts that are, um, I guess, that are people who are outside of your research cohort, etc. Is there any scope or benefit suggested so far for people to take uh, probiotics? And is this something that's been kind of considered that you're aware of? Yeah, so the probiotic research is very promising um, and there is uh, evidence to suggest that probiotics do seem to help with, um, you know, a variety of mental health um, disturbances like stress or um, depression or anxiety. The, the, um, the impact seems to be small and, and the results are, I guess you could say, mixed and uh, you know, why is that? Perhaps because um, when you take a probiotic, um, I think of it this way, um, it'd be like saying um, salmon is a good fish. So putting a, a bunch of salmon into the ocean. Well, um, <laughs> you know, if you if you if the ocean was only filled with salmon, um, <laughs> it, it's not it's not exactly still not a healthy ecosystem, even though salmon is good, if you like. Um, and so... Um, same with probiotic, you're introducing one or two or a small number of um, uh, positive, good gut bacteria, whereas, um, you know, like training was the same before, trillions are there and they live in uh, ecosystems where they need each other to survive. So um, uh, that's why we are looking into the food transplants because that represents a whole a complete probiotic, if you like. <laughs> Yeah, wow. And do you, the, the people that you're selecting for your study, do they tend to have gut symptoms associated with their mental illnesses or mm. not necessarily? Well, well, the research is underway. So our mm. study is um, 15 people only, mm. um, of which we are, we are now, I think, one third recruited sort of um, and so we're still collecting that data I couldn't tell you what the results are yet because it's it's underway um, uh, but so far um, it seems like a lot of them do have um, you know gut issues mm -hmm. yeah and at a population level do you think that it, there's something we could be doing in terms of dietary advice or um, as Cybersu said you know should everyone be on a probiotic what do you think where, where's this research heading? Um, the, the research is probably, I mean, <laughs> there's probably no harm in being on a probiotic. <laughs> so, and eating some vegetables. <laughs> yeah, and, and healthy diet, absolutely. That's, that's very clear that that's related to positive health outcomes in general as well as mental health outcomes. And it's been used as a treatment for depression with really compelling results. Um, in a number of studies now so for sure <laughs> we uh, I would definitely recommend a healthy diet um, uh, which doesn't you know not just one food or a superfood kind of thing but you know patterns of diet are the thing. Cybersu do you have any final questions panel beater anything Dr Green anything we haven't asked you about that you'd really like to add? One thing I'd just like to say is um, it's a really exciting field and we, we hold a lot of hope for, um, you know, poo transplants and what they might represent in terms of a new treatment for 
uh, mental illnesses and depression in our research. But I'm, I must I must stress that um, backyard F- <laughs> FMT, backyard poo transplants, uh, <laughs> DIY is very much not advised. Um, You've probably got us all convinced on that, don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, people are doing it, I can tell you. And, wow. um, uh, you know, without proper screening measures in place, you can transfer yeah. harmful bacteria. It can be very dangerous. So I just <laughs> wanted to finish on that note. Thank you we for that disclaimer. In the studio here, we won't be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I'm glad to hear. Dr. Green, thank you so much for joining us. That was really extremely interesting and wild. Um, Thank you so much for sharing your your research with us, and we'd love to have you back maybe in a when you've got some results that you can. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been great. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. And now we've got another wonderful interview with Julie Bornenkoff. I hope I'm saying your name right. Can you tell me? Is that okay? Oh, good. You are. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Julie is a clinical psychologist by trade, but is also a very experienced healthcare executive. And she's currently the CEO of Perinatal Anxiety and Depression Australia, also known as PANDA. She's joining us all the way from WA this morning. So it's bright and early over there on um, Easter Sunday. Thank you so much for joining us Julie it's wonderful to have you how are you so good thanks training wheels for having me it's a a wonderful space to be talking into on Easter morning I have a 10 year old who's jumping around the lounge room so (laughs) (laughs) it is bright and early here but great to be here thank you thank you so much I and your audio is perfect by the way so we're all under control I wanted to start by just asking about your clinical practice as a clinical psychologist. Was perinatal Mm. psychology something that you were particularly interested in, in your clinical practice? No, look, it's a great question. And, you know, historically I've worked in a whole lot of areas, you know, grief and trauma were a space that I was really fascinated by, Um, you know, looking at depression more than anxiety as a practitioner was an area I lent into Um, and also you know working in a space where adjustment or grief and loss when you hadn't lost somebody in the end of life stages was something I was fascinated by but I also when I lived in WA because I'm a WA girl um, did a whole lot of work in the birth trauma space and helping mums and dads who had experienced birth trauma Um, I worked in Rockingham Quinana and did a lot of work in people who are fly in fly out communities and how they adjusted so I've always worked in this space but my passion has been in free healthcare so I've only ever worked in a mental health space where I deliver free support to community and that's where my heart sits so that's the core piece of the work that Panda does is everything we do is free. Yeah that's awesome and and it obviously leans so well into this kind of public health role that you're in now. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about perinatal depression and anxiety? How common are those conditions? Why, Mm. Why should we care about them? Uh, And, you know, fundamentally, we should be thinking about people's mental health as they become parents, either in the planning to become a parent, um, in that first pregnancy period, or in the 12 months of baby's life, which is what we refer to as a perinatal period. 
in the same way we would, you know, whole of health and well-being. So, you know, we know that mums and dads are hypervigilant to what's going on, including the gut, Jessica, um, you know, during that period and really wanting to set themselves up to be the best vessel, as I heard you say, training wheels, um, you know, and when we're doing that, we also need to be thinking about our mind because there are so many changes in identity that people go through and the stress that results from that can either, you know, tip somebody into a space where they become more anxious or more depressed. So we know that one in five mums and one in 10 dads will experience anxiety and depression during that period. Um, so it's really, really relevant because it's common. And it's bad right <laughs> it's it's common and it has impacts beyond just your mood and your kind of livelihood in that moment there are effects on your on your family and mm. and attachment and lots of flow on effects aren't there most definitely, you know, and I think one of the things that at Panda we try to make people really aware of is that it isn't bad for everybody. So we know that lots of mums and dads are hypervigilant to becoming unwell mentally um, and therefore that then exacerbates the stress they experience. So we do want to start this conversation with saying it's not bad for everyone. You know, it's always on a sliding scale and a spectrum where some people may get really mild symptoms that would never be diagnosable as a mental illness some people as you're saying training wheels do end up in the more pointy end of, of the spectrum where their symptoms of anxiety and depression may well result in you know really catastrophic thoughts about hurting themselves or their bub um, you know or just really opting out in all other ways. I meant to say at the beginning and I've, I've written it in my note and I just skipped right over it that the disclaimer that this interview will involve the discussion of suicide most likely so just so listeners are aware that that's coming up um, you mentioned that sometimes when in, in the most serious cases of perinatal mental illness there can be thoughts of suicide or mm. or harm to the baby and Panda have recently won an award for suicide mm. prevention can you tell us about that? Yeah, look, we're so proud to have received this award and it is for our priority communities in Victoria and, you know, has been very much focused in on the work that we've done in response to not only the pandemic, but just generally over the years, the complexity of our callers' needs getting greater. Um, so we're really pleased to have won the award. But not just because awards are wonderful things that recognise the amazing work my staff at Panda do, but that it really does evidence the need that people do experience during this period and that is that uh, you know we know and if we use for example last year Panda delivered 45,000 calls to our community free calls to people at risk and or really vulnerable we also know that 20 percent of those calls were to people at suicide at risk of suicide wow. um, and again on a scale so some were just starting that space of I don't like this feeling I feel faulty I feel like I'm failing and I want to start thinking about getting off this ride so to speak um, and then through to people who have needed really complex care and support to wrap around them to ensure that they're getting hooked in with the right healthcare providers or supported into a mother baby unit if their needs are really complex and they're really at risk so the work that we're doing in this space is really 
it's it's always there for us. It's work that Panda does, and our name is a little bit of a misnomer because we work in the broader mental health space. Um, but it's a nice recognition through getting this award for the, the great work that team do. And congratulations, really well deserved. Um, Thank you. That award, but as you said, you know, it's not about the awards. It's about the no. wonderful work that you're doing. Can you tell us how can people get in touch with Panda if they feel like they need help? Yeah, so Panda has a wonderful array of supports. Um, we're noting that our helpline, which is the core support that people, when, especially when they're experiencing those feelings of shame and failure and getting to the end where they are thinking about, you know, just wanting to crawl into bed and not wake up or all of those pervasive thinking, um, is really to reach out to our help. And our helpline is there via 1300 726 306. And people can call that Monday to Friday, 7am till 9.30pm at night. And we are open on public holidays over Easter. So for anyone listening. Um, the other piece that we have as a, a support for people is our website. So we've just recently refreshed our website and it's really centred around people coming to that website via panda.org.au and clicking on to where whether or not they're a mum or a dad or a grandparent that is seeking support for their community. We have translations into 40 languages and there are an amazing resources on that website for people, including mental health checklists, which are 30 question checklists where people can get a read on how extreme their experience is and what the pathways to care um, are for them. It is a really beautiful website. I did have a look the other day. Thank it you. is lovely. Cyber Sue, go for it. it. Yeah. So, Julie, as a as a partner or a friend of someone, when mm. should we be feeling starting to feel worried about our person we care for? And when and then what what what's your advice on what we should say or what we should what we should help how, how should we respond if we're feeling worried? Yeah. Look, I think first and foremost, as I would always say to all of my clients, there are no shoulds in this space. You know, it's always about trusting your gut. And Jessica, I was laughing about your gut relationship because, you know, we often say that when you're caring for a new baby or you're pregnant and there are all these things going on in your body, your kind of flags, your internal flags are a little bit disrupted and you don't trust them so much. Mm. So, you know, as soon as you get that niggling feeling that we all get, whether it's in our, our tummies physically um, or in our bodies or whether it's in our minds, to really just have the conversation and a lot of our callers who are supporting somebody will say, I didn't know what to say so I didn't raise it. And the ultimate response to that is you don't have to know what to say. You know, our callers say to us that it was somebody saying you don't look like you're doing so well that reinforced that there wasn't something, you know, feeling right to the caller and they reached out for support. So just acknowledging it, you know, I think is really important, CyberSooth. It's about, you know, not feeling you have to fix it when you have that conversation because often people can give people too much information and because they're already feeling mentally vulnerable, they don't engage with the content. So simply saying you look like you're having a rough time, what's going on, is there anything I can do? is that first step and if they do need support then you know services like pandas or going to their gp child health nurse midwife they're you know saturated in a system of care when going through pregnancy in that first 12 months yeah we are lucky in that way aren't we there's a lot of um, mm. help available you said before that um 
you know, that it's sort of all on a spectrum and, and it's quite normal to feel overwhelmed and exhausted and tired and mm. stressed as a parent, especially the first time. What sort of things should people be looking out for that maybe what they're experiencing isn't normal, that really mm. they should be looking for help? Yeah. So, again, you know, we would be asking people to think about three areas of their life, and that is their mood, their behaviours and their relationships when thinking about whether or not they're struggling. So you want somebody to be reflecting on whether or not they have pervasive or ongoing thoughts around, um, you know, wanting the pain psychologically to end, feeling constantly worried and these churning, racing thoughts, um, whether or not they're having those feelings of being, you know, a failure and therefore, you know, feeling shamed that they're not able to be the parent they had hoped to be and therefore, you know, kind of having thoughts about harming themselves all of those things are things that you need to be watching out for and asking around um, we're also then looking at behaviors so often people are disengaging from the things that would generally make them feel good like exercise um, you know going for a walk sitting in the sunshine doing a bit of gardening those sort of things are things that people will often disengage from when they're anxious or depressed um, and then relationships so pulling away from your core relationships or feeling that you don't want to engage with them because people might see that you're not doing so well or that you're not a great parent which is often what people fear the most when we know near enough is good enough mm. absolutely right thank you so much Julie for reinforcing that and you know it's it's normal to have a bad day or a hard day but if if those days are sort of stretching out into multiple days or weeks that's when we mm. really should be looking for help right yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we, we would encourage people who are experiencing thoughts of suicide or harming their bubs to reach out to Lifeline um, if Panda isn't open, so if not Monday to Friday. Um, it's really important that you get a read on it and, you know, get to a space where you're feeling better and able to engage with your baby. Thank you so much, Julie. We really appreciate your time this morning, especially from all the way over the other, over the mm. west side. <laughs> um, Thank you. If this discussion has brought up any challenging thoughts for anyone who's listening this morning, remember Lifeline are available all the time on 13 11 14. Um, and remember Panda has got a wonderful website that you can look at too if you are a new or expecting parent. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Thank you so much for listening to Radiotherapy. It's been a wonderful show with two fabulous guests and I'm so pleased we've been able to spend the last hour with you. Cyber Sue, we've had a message from a listener come through and we love listeners contacting us so thank we you so much have. for contributing we have we've had a, we've had a couple of excellent messages this morning and one of them i thought was uh, it's worthy just to share with our audience so after our chat little news item at the beginning about covid um it's uh, one of our listeners recommended that we refer to a um interview that was on triple r with um i'm just going back here for a second with brendan crab so you can google this and you'll find it and it's an interview about living with long COVID and uh, uh, living with COVID in the long term and in particular i think for people who um, are unable to get vaccinated and are immunocompromised it sounds like it's a really worthy it's just under an hour worth seeking out and listening to so thanks for that uh, tip listener 
We've also had another message come through talking about how important Panda's work is. And I'm just looking at the time and where the seconds are ticking down, but someone's just shared their experience with their grandmother suffering very extreme mental illness um, in the early postpartum period and how the effects of that then went on to affect their parent and how different their lives may have all been if a service like Panda was available at that time. So thank you so much. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.